Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today I'm going to summarize episodes 1, 2, and 3 of season 2 of Ear Seduction, wherein I invited a fundamentalist Christian named Nathan Spears to discuss the nature of evidence, reality, and how to construct an accurate worldview. In these episodes, uh, Nathan had a couple of things specifically that he wanted to address, and uh, we go over sort of the format in the episodes themselves, but as a summary, the first episode was given sort of to Nathan to sort of direct and run. The second episode was then given to me to sort of direct and run, and then the third episode was given back to Nathan. We both sort of ran the show, but it was much more of a collaboration than anything else. But if you'll notice, uh, you know, Nathan took the floor um, in the beginning of all three episodes, uh, and that's because he was my guest, and I wanted him to be heard. So, in an email before the first episode, Nathan started out by saying he was going to come on my show and deny that science was a tool capable of describing all of reality. He went on further to say he was going to deny that a scientific worldview was even possible. So, in relation to the first position, that science is a tool capable of describing all of reality, his reasoning was as such. He said, so far, science hasn't explained all of reality. He got more specific and said that science is not able to explain or to test the interiority of experience. That's what he called it, um, which is essentially just a, another word, another phrase for consciousness. Therein, in the interiority of Nathan's experience or in his consciousness, Nathan said that that's where he communes with Jesus. And this communing with Jesus in his consciousness is a direct experience with consciousness that can only be accomplished first person. He then went on to say, a direct experience of consciousness is subjective, and therefore science cannot say anything about it because subjective experience is not admissible as evidence in a scientific worldview. He went on further to say that science will never be able to address Nathan's consciousness, the place where he definitely talks with Jesus. And when asked what evidence he had that Jesus existed in his consciousness, Nathan points out the fruits or good deeds that he commits in the world as the evidence for the existence of Jesus inside his consciousness or in his consciousness. Now, Nathan readily admitted that people can do good deeds without believing in Jesus, but asserts that his good deeds are evidence of Jesus' existence in his own consciousness, as are the good deeds and assertions of other Christians. So let's discuss this position, and I've tried to sort of lay it out in easily understandable points. Now, Nathan went to great pains and lengths to describe this to me, but unfortunately didn't do a very good job. In fact, uh, after publishing the first episode uh, on, a, on a different podcast, I used to publish on a different podcast, um, most of the feedback I got was is people had no idea what Nathan was talking about. So I ha I've done this episode to make sure that that isn't duplicated on my 
my podcast, Ear Seduction. So for his first point, so far science hasn't explained all of reality. This is true. Science has not explained all of reality. But be aware that his initial statement was is that he is going to deny that science that science is capable of describing all of reality. Now that is a is a, is an assertion that this first point that he makes does not uphold. It doesn't support that. Just because science hasn't so far explained all of reality, and you could point out a multitude of things that science has yet to explain. Dark matter, for instance. Oh, and by the way, science has not been able to explain consciousness. It has explained what we're calling aspects of consciousness, but as far as consciousness, the word, what it actually means, what it's referring to in the real world, um, we don't really know yet. What we do know about consciousness has all been learned through the scientific method, though. So anything that we say for sure is consciousness, an aspect or element of consciousness, for instance, your sight, your ability to place yourself in 3D time and space. For instance, if you are unconscious, you are not seeing, you are not placing yourself in 3D time and space. We know that. We know a lot more about what being unconscious is than we do about what being conscious is. But you can sort of understand the elements of consciousness, or at least what people are calling consciousness. Again, we don't have a good definition of consciousness, but what we do know about consciousness or what we're calling consciousness is all scientific. It's all something that we're studying in neuroscience and psychology and uh, psychiatry and so on and so on, right? And we can, we definitely know how to make someone unconscious where they are not going to know what happened to them, for instance, when we take out their appendix. Okay, so just to just to plant a flag there. Now, this should raise a red flag to you. And it should in a couple of different for a couple of different reasons. So when Nathan stated this initially, that he was going to come on my show and deny that science was a tool capable of describing all of reality, he immediately added a caveat to that. He said, I don't think I'm going to be able to prove it to you by rational means alone. In other words, I don't have evidence or proof. You're going to just have to take it on faith faith. You're just going to have to trust me. That is a huge red flag. When somebody says they're going to demonstrate to you something, and then they're going to say, but my demonstration isn't going to meet your needs for belief. Okay, well, that is a, a an admission that the person probably doesn't know what they're talking about, and that you, me in this case, you are going to have to kind of give them some grace. You're going to have, you're going to have to take it on faith. Now, another big red flag here was, is he is is very much basing this this particular argument on consciousness, a word that we don't know what it means, and we don't know all the aspects of, of it, and it hasn't been well defined. It's a word kind of like spirituality or ghost. What is a ghost? Well, what's it made out of? What properties does it have? How tall is it? How thick is it? Are we sure that it's a spirit of a person? Or is it a demon pretending to be a person? Or is it a god, perhaps? Or maybe it's a llama that came back and some for some reason looks like a person. The point is, is we don't ever have a ghost to test to find out what it is. All we have is testimony of people saying they've seen ghosts and then they describe what they think they saw. I saw my mother sitting at the edge of my bed, but she's been dead for 10 years. 
Okay. <laughs> but that doesn't tell me what a ghost is, and that doesn't tell me that that was your mother and so on. We don't know what that was. And we don't know what consciousness is. So to base his entire critique on a thing, on a word that we don't know what it means, another big red flag. So another huge red flag was when Nathan stated that he had he communes with Jesus in his consciousness. Okay. Well, as we all know, subjective experiences are not really all that accurate in a couple of different ways, right? You may misremember what you saw. You may not have seen something in your periphery that actually was filled in by your mind. You have blind spots literally right in front of your head that your brain fills in. You can test this. It's really fun, actually. And they're literally right in front of your head. A lot of people think they're off to the side. They're not. They're in front of your face. To test your blind spot, you're going to be putting something directly in front of your face. In science, anyway, in a scientific worldview, there is a pyramid of evidence with the most important evidence being at the top and the least important or least useful evidence being at the bottom. Now, somebody's account of what's going on in their brain is generally not very useful, especially for when we're trying to determine if something exists, right? Something in the real world. And Nathan readily admitted that it would be stupid to believe in something that didn't exist. But he places the existence of Jesus inside of his head and uses a very interesting word when he was talking about it. He said it was detached from reality which is very interesting slip, right? When you're detached from reality, you readily understand that it's all in your head, right? You're having an internal experience that can't be verifiable. Now, when we're talking about morality, we're going to talk a little bit more about why you might start to take people's, their subjective experience more seriously, but I'll get into that. So he also made it very clear that his experience in the interiority of his mind or his personal experience had to be first person. You cannot get there by talking to someone and you cannot get there by hooking their brain up to an fMRI scanner or a machine of any kind. You can't get there by injecting with it with drugs or anything like that. He made it very clear that there is a distinct separation between what's happening in his brain and any access to that from the outside world. Now, presumably, and this was difficult for me to pick up in the you know heat of the moment or whatever, but presumably, though, when he tells me that Jesus is in his consciousness, I should believe him, even though he has just gotten done telling me that there is no way to externally have a direct connection to someone's consciousness. He says it's a first person experience only. He was very adamant about that. And I pointed out, obviously, well, we have fMRI scanners. That's a, a way into your consciousness. We have uh, talk therapy, psychotherapy. That's a way into your consciousness. Uh, uh, we have drugs <laughs> and other technology that we can put into your body that will affect your consciousness. He rejected all of these as not being direct. He, he said very specifically, the only way to have a direct experience with somebody's consciousness or with, your, with consciousness is first person. You can only experience your own consciousness. Now, this was to protect him, right? This was to protect his position from any criticism. It was also to protect it from any uh, requests for evidence. Now, like I said, huge red flag when he's the one telling me that it's Jesus in his consciousness. How does he know that? And if I cannot verify that, based on the rules that he laid down, talk therapy can't get to it, so he presumably can't even tell somebody about Jesus and expect that that's direct. He has said in his own rules about how we are to understand the interiority of experience that you can't ask somebody about it. All you're going to get then is their account 
of what happened. It's not the actual thing that happened in their consciousness. So him telling me about Jesus, I should, based on Nathan's own rules, reject what he's telling me. Now, personally, I'm willing to be a little bit more lenient, but instead of rejecting it, which is, by the way, Nathan's strategy for the entirety of all three episodes was to reject everything I said, even though I demonstrated it very thoroughly, and my strategy was to question and to enlighten and to try to pull out the truth. According to Nathan's own rules, I would have to reject him. And of course, I'm guessing he would reject everybody else. So when he brought up, for instance, well, what would you say, he was asking me, what would you say if, you know, the one billion Christians or whatever who say they commune with Jesus in their minds, what would you say to them? Uh, it's very difficult for me to answer that without just saying, well, didn't you just say that we would have to disregard that? Because we can't ask a person about their subjective experience and actually consider that direct direct access, which is what he requires in his in, in, in his logic. Science can't explain the interiority of experience because it doesn't have direct access is what he said. The only way to have direct access is to have it happen in your mind and then you have direct access to it. But any account that you might give to somebody else is just an account. It's not the actual direct access. So if, you know, one billion people say, I experience God in my mind, that doesn't give us direct access. He requires direct access but his own rules negate his own requirement. It undermines his position, in other words. Now, he fails to see this, obviously. He's a Christian. Christians fail to see a great number of things, as do non-Christians or atheists or whatever. But as a person such as myself who considers himself an epistivist or considers himself very strict about what I believe and why, I can't fail to see this. I have to be strict. So I know, I don't just think, I know that he's mistaken based on these rules that he's given me and based on his account of them. Um, again, he makes sure to say that direct experience of consciousness is subjective. And he says that science cannot access the subjective. This is the first all-in-out lie. Science absolutely has access to the subjective. As I said, we can just cram drugs into people's bodies and reliably get a, a subjective experience out of them. They can, for instance, the example we used in the podcast was, is you can shoot somebody up with dopamine and they will feel euphoric 100% of the time. Now, direct experience of the consciousness is subjective. I mean, I directly experience my consciousness for sure, if consciousness is a thing. Just for the rest of this uh, episode, let's just say consciousness is a thing. Just to push this narrative, okay? I don't want to have to keep quantifying and qualifying what I'm saying. For sure, I directly experience my own consciousness, for sure. But I also have the ability to express my consciousness through words to other people. So if somebody asks me, how do you feel? I can say, I feel sad. Or I might say, I feel like there's a presence in the room. Or I might say, because I've experienced this before, I feel at one with the universe, right? I just went on an eight-hour hike. I'm at 14,000 feet. I'm deprived of oxygen. I'm all euphoric. And I feel at one with the universe. I feel very strongly spiritual right now, whatever that word means, spiritual, right? Like the self has just completely dissolved and I am just the mountain range, another peak perhaps. But as a rational person, 
as somebody who recognizes the limitations of my own interior experience and consciousness, I know that I'm not really at one with the universe. I just feel like I am. So when we're querying the folks out there and trying to draw out what their subjective experience is, it is something we have to ask them. I shoot you with dopamine. Do you feel euphoric? Yes, I feel euphoria. Great. Next, right? There is a little scientific experience you are able to ask somebody what their experience is and they can tell you. And that is data. It's scientific data. It's the exact kind of data we use in psychotherapy, in drug therapy. I mean, if we numb your entire body with drugs and then ask you, can you feel this while we're poking you in the leg with a needle? And you say no. <laughs> you have now just described the interiority of your experience to us accurately. And we are then able to use that as scientific data. So the subjective isn't completely out of the realm of science. Now, granted, any one thing a person might say, for instance, about how the, the shape of the planet, right? Their subjective experience is that of it being flat. I've actually interviewed those folks. Stay tuned. You're going to hear those interviews. But their subjective experiences of the world being flat. We know that that's not true because we have objectively verified the shape of the planet. It is a spherical planet, sphere-like. <laughs> but if we're asking a person how they feel, we literally have to query that person and then take what their subjective answer is as how they feel. This is exactly how behavioral psychology and talk therapy works. I remember when I went to talk therapy, my therapist gave me a very nice uh, array of smiley faces. And they weren't all smiley, right? Some of them were frowny and some of them were crying and some of them had red in their face and so on. But these were always different emotions. They were all recognitions of emotions. And it had little labels, uh, frustration. Uh, anxious, blah, blah, blah. And this was so that I could describe my feelings to her so that she could be better at the science of fixing my brain through psychology. So we very clearly have a science of the subjective mind. Now, Nathan still asserts that thus science will never be able to address Nathan's consciousness, the place where Jesus definitely exists, according to Nathan. But he can't show us that. He can't demonstrate that. Now, he might say something Something along the lines of awe, but you can't demonstrate sadness if your behavioral psychologist asks you, how do you feel? And you say, I feel sad. You can't demonstrate that, can you? Hmm. That's kind of a prickly problem, but we can hook people up to fMRI scanners and we can hook them up to other scientific instruments and we can actually define in a physiological way what being sad is or what depression is is, for instance, or what having anxiety is. We can verify those emotions. We can verify that Nathan believes he's talking to Jesus, but we can't verify that it's actually Jesus that he's talking to. He just feels like he's talking to someone in his head. Almost everybody feels like they're talking to someone in their head at some time. Maybe they're talking to themselves. Maybe they've got a visual avatar of their 
mom or their dad or their best friend or their wife or their husband or whatever, right? But that doesn't mean you're actually talking to your mom or your wife or your husband or whatever. You just are imagining that you are. These are all verifiable things also in science. Not, not just stuff we have to take people's word for, but let's say that we were in talk therapy and we were lying about being depressed or sad. And then they hooked us up to the appropriate machines and they were like, you know, none of the brain stuff is happening. <laughs> none of the sad stuff is happening. In fact, we see plenty of happy drugs in the brain. We see dopamine. We see all the parts of the brain that light up when somebody has a normal brain function, but yet this person says they're sad. Wouldn't that then be a reason to be like, well, maybe this person's lying. I mean, science is so rich with information. To, to assert that science will never be able to address the consciousness or the interiority of experience, as Nathan puts it, is a little off. And to be quite frank, as soon as Nathan said this in this direct of a way it will never be able to, he immediately backpedaled and said, well, maybe it will be able to. It just hasn't so far, and I don't see how it ever will. Okay, well, then you're ignorant, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not a good argument. <laughs> Being ignorant isn't a good place to start from if you want to try to prove something or if you want to try to, you know, convince people. Now, let's talk really quick about the fruits in the world that Nathan sees as evidence for Jesus in his head. So, he says that he says that he communes with Jesus in his head, and the evidence for this is the fruit that he, pl whatever, bears in the world. In other words, he, ha he does good deeds in the world, and this is this is the evidence that he points to that he's actually talking to Jesus, because of course Jesus would tell you to do something good, right? Um, if you read the Bible, actually, no. <laughs> Jesus doesn't tell you to do good things necessarily. Some things are all right, but we can get to that at another topic. Uh, but when asked directly if someone can do good deeds or be a good person without communing with Jesus in their head, he says, yes, you can. So immediately undermines any validity to his position that the good deeds are proof of Jesus, because I have good deeds and that doesn't prove Jesus for me. So his first overall position was unfortunately pretty difficult to support. And as stated in the beginning of the podcast, I said if there was any truth to what Nathan said, I wanted to take it on board because I am trying to seek out the truth of, of the matter. <laughs> I'm very curious about the truth. But unfortunately, Nathan isn't very curious about the truth. So the second claim that Nathan made was that it was impossible to have a scientific worldview. Now, real quick, let's just dis define what a worldview is. Now, according to Nathan, and I agreed to this definition, I think it's a very eloquently stated definition, a worldview is a model of 3D time and space such that the agent within 3D time and space can make sense of their actions. As far as modeling 3D time and space, it seemed to me very obvious that science does this and it does it quite well. In fact, everything we know about 3D time and space, we know through science. We even have such a high level of understanding of 3D time and space that we have redefined it to be space-time. To my surprise, Nathan fought me on this point to and nail. He continually and fervently negated almost every statement I made towards this fact. A couple of the ways that he decided to do this was... Initially, he tried to undermine that science gives us a model of the world. He was trying to say, essentially, that it's too complicated. Science is too complex. There's too many definitions and facts to take into account. We're not actually able to take them on board, and therefore we can't have a worldview based on those facts. The other thing that he tried to say was that 
Because the different branches of science deal in different aspects of reality, and when you're focusing on one branch, you don't generally care about another branch, that for some reason this made it impossible for you to have a comprehensive worldview in your mind. One of the ways that he tried to describe this was that if we're thinking about human beings, we would probably think about biology, and that we would not be thinking about physics. This in his mind made it so that science couldn't be a holistic worldview. Because you're not dealing with all of reality at the same time, you can't have a comprehensive, all-inclusive worldview to then utilize. I, of course, pushed back onto this and mentioned to him in multiple different ways that all of the science is intertwined and that by taking on board a scientific worldview, you're actually bringing to the forefront of your mind all of the complexity and richness that you've learned in physics and biology and chemistry and so on. He rejected this full on. Now, I even went so far as to demonstrate a scientific worldview and its validity. He, of course, rejected this as well. And I did this demonstration in the following way. I said, let's contrast a scientific worldview with a religious worldview. And I used the story of Jesus in, I believe it was John, where he went into somebody's house and they were making him dinner. Before they served him dinner, they washed their plates and their forks and so on. And they started to sort of sanitize the area, the space that they were going to eat. Jesus spoke up at this point and said to his host that they didn't need to do any of this because evil does not come from without. Evil only comes from within. Evil was a struggle between between God and the devil. This struggle was taking place inside of you, and in order to be right with God, you had to do the things detailed in the Old Testament. So you had to be essentially the perfect Jew, which Jesus was, according to Christians. Now, Jesus didn't understand anything about germs. He didn't understand that the disease that he was talking about, the evil that he was talking about, was actually because of germs. And those germs were going to make people sick. See, he believed that sickness was was the devil and it could be cast out of the body, let's say into a pig and then driven off the edge of a cliff. If I were to take on a religious worldview, that is what I would be telling people. Now, it should be obvious that Jesus was false. He didn't know what he was talking about. He had no concept of germs or disease. Interesting that, that Jesus, knower of everything, a creature that knows everything, literally had no idea about soap or germs or boiling water to, to sanitize things or anything. And in fact, told people not to do these things. Talk about saying something that causes harm out in the world. Where's the fruit in that? So let's take on a scientific worldview. A scientific worldview is takes into consideration the evidence for germs and the germ theory that is a account of that evidence such that the theory is supported by all of the evidence and is contradicted by none of the evidence. By taking this on board as a scientific worldview, you then have a way to interact with the world such that your actions make sense. You use soap, you use bleach, you sanitize your hands, your mouth, your utensils, your plates, your, your table, your countertops, your sinks. All of those surfaces must be sanitized if you want to keep yourself from getting sick. This is exactly what Jesus didn't know because Jesus didn't have a scientific worldview. Now, my guest Nathan wanted to tell me that I couldn't have a scientific worldview. And this example, this story was a 
demonstration of exactly how one incorporates and understands a scientific worldview. This, of course, he also rejected. So, so anyway, the first part of Rebecca's definition, that we have an accurate model of 3D time and space, wonderfully covered by science. The second aspect, such that the agent therein, in this 3D time and space, is able to make sense of their actions. And I pointed out, well, if you decide that science is your worldview, and you take on board and understand and accept the germ theory of disease, and then do the things that science has demonstrated to help keep you healthy and safe, you will be healthy and safe. You don't have to worry about a spiritual battle within your body. You just need to sanitize your dishes and and keep things pretty clean. Now, Nathan immediately turned this into, well, isn't that a battle between good and evil? I guess good being your health and evil being the germs. And it's like, wow, did you miss the point? I kind of just blew this off because it was so infantile and stupid. And it was so clearly not an objection. It was just literally, it's like a baby. It's like him just talking just to talk. It's like a two-year-old that just, you know, says like, that dog is funny. Yes, Nathan, that dog is funny. Let's move on. So I demonstrate that in my scientific worldview, the germ theory of disease exists and that I utilize that worldview to make sense of the world around me and therefore I wash my dishes. And it makes very good sense. He, of course, has to deny this and he says, yes, but that's not science. (laughs) He then goes on to say that, and this is literally, that's what he said the whole time. Yes, but that's not science. (laughs) Never mind that he can't answer any questions about anything unless he borrows from science, which he demonstrates very readily in the podcast. He has no answer to any question I have except for the answers that he borrows from science. And so from there on, we kind of went round and round a little bit trying to ferret out these answers. I kept demonstrating he kept denying that my demonstrations were actually demonstrations. He also, uh, to my demonstration of the germ theory of disease, how that's a scientific worldview, he said, yes, but that's not a worldview. That doesn't encapsulate all of what a worldview is. And I said, well, test me, ask me about anything, and I can answer it with a scientific answer. I'll answer you scientifically as somebody working from a scientific worldview. He refused to ask any questions of the like. He just continued to deny my position, which I pointed out to him, I was not denying his position. I readily accept that he is coming from a Christian worldview. That is probably why he's so ignorant to science, which he demonstrates multiple times. He demonstrates, this is no shit, he demonstrates in these interviews that he doesn't even know what a scientific theory is. He has such an incomplete understanding of what science is, and yet he continues to object against having a scientific worldview because, and this is really funny. He said it was too hard. He just doesn't have time to read enough. I wasn't smart enough to say this during the interview, but it begs the question, don't you spend at least one day a week reading the Bible and your stupid religious book that got you to the bizarre belief, and I'll get into this a little bit in a second, that the actual events that describe who we are as people occurred in the Garden of Eden, i.e. the fall, the fall of man. But it begs the question, you spend a day every week reading that one stupid book, you couldn't just trade that time in and, you know, review some shit on the internet about science? You couldn't learn about cosmology or the Big Bang Theory or abiogenesis or the theory of evolution or the different 
aspects of evolution that are so fun, like allele frequency differentiation and genetics and twin nested hierarchies. You know, I mean, there's so much to learn. There's so much interesting things to learn in science. And all this moron is doing is wandering around saying it's too hard for me to read, but I'll, I'll go and chant and pray. So a couple other things that came up during our conversation that I thought were noteworthy, other than just the funny little tantrums that he would throw, literally childish tantrums. I mean, he was acting like a, a, a child and he was trying to get some ground. I was decimating him verbally with just a battering of actual verifiable information that he had to at least acknowledge was correct in some sense. And he did this basically by not acknowledging me at all. He would just, okay, okay, um, that's another fact I can't you know, I can't push back against. That's something that's very damning to my position. That's something that isn't going to help my position. That's, a, oh, but, 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 but you're an asshole is basically what he would do. And then he would throw these little fucking tan, you know, tantrums and act like I was being unfair. But in our question, in our Q&A, in, in the times when we were sharing back and forth, he demonstrated that uh, not only is he almost completely ignorant of science, but that he's also a liar. And he's very, very comfortable being a liar, especially for Christ. And especially because Christ only occurs in his mind, especially for himself. He has very little intellectual integrity. He has very little integrity at all. But one of the ways that he did this was, I started asking him about the order of creation. So in Genesis, there is an order. God speaks the earth into existence, and then God speaks light into existence, and then a bunch of other stuff happens. Oh, oh by the way, plants. And then after plants comes the sun. <laughs> so it's really silly. But I say to him, I say, do you think that that's the accurate way? And he, he, he will not answer. He refuses to answer. This is very telling. He can't even be honest with himself or me. And I'm just asking. He's, during this process of me asking him questions about what he believes, he's just throwing accusations that I'm being dishonest or that I'm being a liar or that I'm trying to play word games or that I'm asking leading questions or that I'm engaging in intellectual masturbation. That was like one of his words that he liked to use. Um, and it was just very telling, the little tantrums he would throw while me asking him, so do you really think a snake spoke? I mean, he alluded to his belief in the Garden of Eden account of humanity by stating that the book essentially tells us about who we are and how we got here, that we came from two people and that we were perfect until the fall of man, until the knowledge of good and evil. Now, after mankind ate from the knowledge of good and evil, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, according to Nathan, knowing what's good and what's evil then just arises in us because it's a, it's a part of the fabric of the universe. In other words, when we started to discuss morality, which is we spent a fair amount of time on morality, Nathan had absolutely no answers for how to get the right answer to moral questions. And he would say things like, well, I don't want to think about that. I just want to know that it's good or bad or right or wrong or moral or immoral, which is an admission that he's not trying to be moral or immoral. He's actually being a moral, as in not moral. He's not doing any of the calculations. He's just doing what he thinks he's being told, presumably by Jesus in his mind. So he's just claiming that moral or immoral is just 
whatever arises in consciousness. When I pointed out that it may arise in consciousness for somebody to do something that we recognize as immoral, like let's say rape, he said that he didn't want to have that discussion, that there is nothing to discuss. It's just immoral. And I said, well, how do you tell the difference between you who says it's just immoral and somebody who is a rapist who says, no, it's not, a, it's actually not immoral. It's, it's fine. <laughs> how do you tell the difference? He had absolutely no answer to this. None. He tried to worm his way around and tried to make some kind of point, but he failed miserably at every turn. It was really something to behold. Obviously, I want you to go and listen to those three episodes, even though they're quite long, over two hours each one of them. But in this summary, and I'm being totally, you know, straightforward with you here, you're not going to find any answers from him. He has absolutely nothing to contribute. If we were going to put a bunch of people in a room to try to figure out how society ought to work and how we should move forward as a people and what the rules should be and why, you wouldn't invite somebody like him because he has nothing to offer. He's an ignoramus. He's just another Christian moron who refuses to think critically and is built a foundation of lies and nonsense where he's just on top of this rickety foundation spinning the murder of an innocent man to vicariously redeem him, himself. He has to try to square that. He has to try to demonstrate how that's moral. No wonder he has no clue what he's talking about. How could that ever be moral? The murder of an innocent man to get yourself into heaven. Hmm. A lot to think about. Well, that's a pretty good summary. I really want to thank you for listening. Uh, please do keep listening. There's going to be something like 25, 20, 20 to 25 more episodes on the way here at Ear Seduction Season 2. And there's going to be a whole bunch more after that in Season 3. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been Ear Seduction. Ah!